Well, thank you very much for the invitation and uh, for the conference, which I much enjoyed. I want to say that I think uh, evil is a very serious subject. I think it really does exist. Um, I think uh, there is such a thing as the core of the concept, and I uh, will endeavor to say what it is. So evil is our most serious and succinct moral condemnation, much worse than moral badness. It involves depraved, malignant, monstrous actions that unjustifiably harm others in ways that breaches the bulwark between civilized life and barbarism. Clarity about evil calls for concrete examples. They are unfortunately readily available and familiar. The ones that follow involve murder, deliberate homicide committed, as the law says, with malice aforethought. And the examples are from the last hundred years or so, but countless others could be drawn from other historical periods. Between 1914 and 18, the Turks massacred about a million and a half Armenians. In 1931, Stalin ordered the murder of prosperous peasants called kulaks, and about two million of them were executed or deported to concentration camps, where they died slowly as a result of forced labor in extreme cold on starvation diet. During the Great Terror of 1937 and 8, two million more people were murdered at Stalin's orders. In 1937 and 8, the Japanese murdered about half a million Chinese in Nanking. During World War II, about six million Jews and two million prisoners of war Half million gypsies, mental defectives, and homosexuals were murdered in Nazi Germany. After India's independence in 1947, over a million Muslims and Hindus murdered each other. In 1950-51, campaign against the so-called counter-revolutionaries in Mao's China, about one million people were murdered and the so-called Great Leap Forward in China, 1959-63, caused the death of an estimated 16 to 13 million people from starvation. Pol Pot in Cambodia presided over the murder of about 2 million people in 1992-95, about 200,000 Muslims were murdered in Bosnia by Serb nationalists. 1994, about 1 million people were murdered in Rwanda. And this, to this list of mass murders, many more could be added from Afghanistan, Argentina, Chile, the Congo, Iran, Iraq, Sudan, Uganda, and numerous other places. These examples only illustrate, but do not define, what evil is. 
The definition I propose begins by focusing on evil actions and identifies five features that jointly make an action evil. First, the actions cause grievous harm. In the examples, the grievous harm is murder, but it may be mutilation, torture, enslavement, blinding, and so forth. Second, the victims are innocent. They were not murdered because of something they have done, but because they were Armenians, Kulaks, Chinese, Jews, Gypsies, homosexuals, Muslims, Hindus, city dwellers, Tutsis, or just those who had the misfortune to be persecuted by the evildoers. The victims have done nothing to deserve the grievous harm inflicted on them. What is done to them, therefore, cannot be explained as punishment, revenge, or self-defense. Third, if the evildoers are normally intelligent and not incapacitated, for instance, by mental illness, drugs, or alcohol, then they must know that their actions cause grievous harm. Normally intelligent people may not know whether some actions such as cosmetic surgery, running a marathon, or taking LSD are harmful, but they cannot fail to know that murder, dismemberment, torture, enslavement, and blinding do cause grievous harm. If they know it, and nevertheless do it, then their actions are deliberate. Fourth, the deliberate infliction of grievous harm on innocent victims may or may not reflect the evildoer's ill will toward them. If it does, then their ill will, in turn, reflects their beliefs and emotions this is a point to which I will return. For the moment, it will suffice to say only that if the deliberate infliction of grievous harm on innocent victims reflects their ill will, then their motives are malevolent. Cruelty, envy, fanaticism, hatred, jealousy, prejudice, rage, ruthlessness, or a combination of some more or some few of these examples are of malevolent evil. Fifth, actions that have the first four features may or may not be morally, morally unjustifiable. It is hard to conceive how a malevolently motivated action that deliberately causes grievous harm to innocent victims could be morally justified. But let us suppose that there are some extraordinary situations in which such, such action would help to avoid even more <coughs> grievous harm. If, however, no moral justification is available, then the action is evil. Those who think that an action that has the first four features is nevertheless morally justified must provide the justification 
since there is an overwhelming presumption against its possibility. An action is evil, then, if it causes grievous harm to innocent victims, and it is deliberate, malevolently motivated, and morally unjustifiable. Actions that have these features may still be more or less evil because they may differ in the quantity and quality of the harm they cause and in the degrees of deliberation and malevolence involved in them. <coughs> evil actions are by definition morally unjustifiable but they may be excusable if there are exempting or extenuating circumstances such as irresistible coercion, great provocation, momentary insanity, or ignorance of relevant facts. The crucial difference between justified and excused actions is that justified actions are not evil, whereas excused ones are, are. Excused actions do not reflect adversely on their agents because there are circumstances that acquit the agents or lessen their responsibility for doing them. Perhaps the most frequently proposed excuse is that evildoers sincerely but mistakenly believe that their victims are guilty or that the grievous harm they cause is morally justified. If such beliefs were true, the actions would not be evil, but the beliefs are false, although the agents believe that they are true. Whether such beliefs qualify as excuses depends on how reasonable they are. If they are self-serving rationalizations, they fail as excuses. If others in the evildoer's position would be likely to hold them, then they might serve as excuses. It must be remembered, however, that the excuses sought for the horrendous actions directed against children and obviously harmless adults it is extremely unlikely that anyone could reasonably believe that such victims are guilty or that murdering them could be excused if nevertheless a legitimate excuse is available then the evildoer's responsibility is lessened although of course the actions remain evil we may say then that people are evil if they habitually perform evil actions and there is no pattern of good actions that may counterbalance the evil ones. Social conditions are evil if they regularly lead people to do evil. The primary subjects of which evil can be predicated are actions. The secondary subjects are people and the tertiary subjects are social conditions. This is not merely a grammatical observation. It indicates the direction in which understanding evil must proceed. We must explain first 
what makes actions evil, then we can go on to ask why people do evil habitually, and lastly inquire why people create and maintain social conditions that lead to habitual evildoing. Such conditions would not be evil if they were not created and maintained by evil people, and people would not be evil if their actions were not habitually evil. Actions, people, and social conditions can be more or less evil, and they may shade into only being morally bad, because the grievousness of the harm, the innocence of the victims, the malevolence of motivation, the deliberateness of, and moral, moral justifiability are often <coughs> matters of degree about which reasonable and morally committed people can disagree. Although there is often a clear difference between evil and moral badness, there are likely to be cases in which the difference becomes unclear. I do not think that this has a substantive bearing on the account I will provide. Given the terrible historical record of mass murders, mutilation, slavery, and torture, there can be no reasonable doubt that evil is prevalent. The question is, why is it prevalent? Now, I come to the secular problem of evil. <clears throat> it is well known that there is a theological problem of evil. If God is perfect in goodness, knowledge, and power, then why has he created our world in which evil is prevalent? The favored answer that evil is created by human beings, not by God, is unsatisfactory. God is said to have created human beings as well as everything else, and if human beings cause evil, then God has created them in a way that they would cause. Why would a perfect God create a very imperfect world? Christians, of course, have struggled with and proposed various solutions to this problem. My present concern, however, is not with their putative solutions, but with pointing out the less well-known fact that there is also a secular problem of evil that is surprisingly similar to the theological problem of evil. <clears throat> I keep having to drink because I'm losing my voice. The secular problem arises in the following way. Normal human beings in normal circumstances prefer well-being to its opposite. Reason requires that we should do what we can to protect the conditions of well-being. Yet the prevalence of evil shows that we often violate these conditions. If we accept the optimistic view that human beings are basically reasonable and good, then how could evil be prevalent? The favored answer is <coughs> 
that evil is prevalent because human beings are corrupted by social conditions. But this is as unsatisfactory as the theological answer that attributes evil to human beings rather than to God. For just as a perfect God would not have created imperfect human beings, so reasonable and good human beings would not have created corrupting social conditions. Just as evil seems to be incompatible with the nature of God as conceived by many Christian theologians, so evil seems to be incompatible with human nature as conceived by many secular thinkers. Now I have chapter and verse from Hume, Rousseau, Kant, John Stuart Mill, and numerous other contemporary thinkers all subscribing to the view that human beings are basically reasonable and inclined toward the good. And if you are interested, I can read out these passages, but in the interest <coughs> of speed, I omit them. But ask me and I will tell you. It is not unfair, I think, to ascribe to these thinkers, classical and contemporary, what I will call the secular faith, which is that human beings are basically reasonable and good. It is a faith because no evidence is allowed to count against it. When human beings act reasonably and morally, it is counted as evidence that confirms the faith. When they act unreasonably and immorally, it is counted as evidence that they have been corrupted by social conditions and that also confirms the faith. Defenders of the secular faith should pause to ask, how is it possible that supposedly reasonable and good human beings create and maintain social conditions that are contrary to the well-being of the people in their society? For these defenders of the secular faith, the problem of evil is as serious as it is for the Christian brethren. Instead of facing the problem, however, they nurture a pleasing illusion and do not ask embarrassing questions about the prevalence of evil. They go to absurd lengths to find excuses for those who violate conditions of well-being. Rawls, for instance, says, I quote, the efforts a person is willing to make is influenced by his natural abilities and skills and the alternatives open to him. The better endowed are more likely, other things being equal, to strive conscientiously and there seems to be no way to discount for the greater good fortune. Efforts to contribute to rather than violate conditions of well-being, therefore, are arbitrary from the moral point of view, says Rawls. Enemies of well-being are just as reasonable and good as its friends. 
Only different social conditions lead them to act differently. Or, as uh, Susan Wolf puts it, I quote, being psychologically determined to perform good, a to perform good actions is compatible with deserving praise for them. But being psychologically determined to perform bad actions is not compatible with blame. An extraordinary sentiment. But defenders of the secular faith do not ask the obvious question of why some social conditions are corrupting. The secular view, however, can be held without this faith. There is another tradition whose defenders may or may not be secular thinkers, but they share realism about the prevalence of evil and the unwillingness to accept optimistic illusions about human reason and goodness. Some who belong to these traditions are Thucydides, Euripides, Machiavelli, Montaigne, Hobbes, Burke, James Fitzjames, Stephen, and Freud. I write in this realistic tradition myself. Realism, however, does not remove the need to explain why evil is prevalent. Why do human beings cause evil? I will consider two widely held but inadequate explanations and then propose a better one. The first inadequate explanation attributes evil to moral monsters, among whom we may distinguish two classes. One contains those who do evil for evil's sake. <laughs> they deliberately and malevolently cause grievous harm to their innocent victims. They know what evil is, but they do not recognize that it limits what they may do. Their evil actions are not means, but ends in themselves. They may be misanthropes, cynics, sadists, who believe that everyone, or only those who belong to a particular group, are incorrigibly depraved. Or they may be deep ecologists, who think that human beings despoil the world, which would be a better place if the species became extinct or they may believe that their victims are loathsome because of some characteristic or belief shared by all members of the group to which they belong, <coughs> as the Nazis believed of Jews and inquisitors of heretics. Or they may be ruled by savage, primitive urges, as do the instigators of tribal massacres in Africa and ethnic cleaners in Bosnia. Another class of moral monsters do evil as a means to some end. They know quite well the requirements of morality, but they think that some other consideration is more important. They talk about the teleological suspension of the ethical, 
whether Talos may be religious, as do Muslim terrorists, Christian <coughs> crusaders, or Hindu fanatics. Or the Talos may be political, as it was for the Jacobins during the terror phrase of the French Revolution, or for Lenin as he was consolidating Bolshevik rule in Russia, or it may be sexual as it was the Marquis de Sade. Moral monsters may be born as such, or they may be made. They may start out with dispositions for both good and evil actions, but they become monstrous because they are brutalized by their experiences or rewarded for evil actions, or embittered by disappointed expectations, or scorned, humiliated, or ridiculed time after time because they have accepted an evil creed. Regardless of what makes them moral monsters, <coughs> however, they are alike in wanting power in order to transform the world or some segment of it in accordance with the ghastly vision. They become mass murderers in order to destroy whoever they think stands in the way. Moral monsters undoubtedly exist, and they account for some evil actions, but the vast majority of evil we are familiar with cannot be attributed to them. First of all, moral monsters are bound to be rare, because it is very difficult to be one. It requires great strength of character, self-reliance, <coughs> and the capacity to live without love, friendship, and trust. The willingness to systematically squelch the little compassion or sympathy they may feel, and also the capacity to sustain the fervid, all-consuming misanthropy. Moral monsters, however, not only have to have these exceptional dispositions, they must also hide the true nature from others. If they did not, they would not be at large, large enough in civilized societies to pursue their evil designs. Secondly, the large-scale evil that led to the mass murder of tens of millions of people in the examples I gave earlier would not have been possible without the cooperation of a large number of ordinary people. Perhaps Stalin, Hitler, Mao, and others were moral monsters, but they could not by themselves have arrested, transported, and guarded the innocent victims, organized the details of the murders, found and supplied the necessary resources, disguised from the rest of the society what was going on, and pulled the triggers and got rid of the corpses. <coughs> Only a fraction of the evil that has been done to the multitude of innocent victims during the last century can be attributed to the actions of moral monsters. The rest have to be done by accomplices who lack the strength, determination, and bitterness to become moral monsters. It needs to be explained why they, the accomplices, did it. The second inadequate explanation 
proceeds from the optimistic secular of faith I have discussed earlier. According to it, most evil actions <coughs> are caused by corrupting social conditions such as poverty, discrimination, persecution, and injustice. <coughs> evil actions are the enraged responses of basically reasonable and good people to being victimized by these conditions. <coughs> Their actions are evil, but they reflect the social conditions that corrupted them, not their evil nature. The prevalence of evil, therefore, is not to be explained by the cruel, envious, fanatical, hateful, jealous, prejudice-ridden, or ruthless dispositions of the murderers, but by the social conditions that caused them to have these dispositions. The agents of evil actions are held to be as innocent as those on whom they vent their rage. Of the defective explanations, this is the most widely held one and the least plausible. It is in fact obviously untenable and cries out for explanation how normally intelligent people could take it seriously. To begin with, there are ways and ways again to respond to corrupting social conditions. We may treat them as adversities and strive to overcome them, become politically active in order to try to reform them, decide to leave the society where the conditions hold for another we believe is better, resign ourselves to them and seek consolation in religion or family life or solitude in nature or become mass murderers. Since the possible responses are many, the response of mass murder cannot be explained merely in terms of corrupting social conditions. It must be explained why the response of moral monsters and their accomplices was mass murder rather, rather than any of the other possible responses. An adequate explanation therefore must take into account the psychological dispositions that incline some people but not others to become mass murderers. Next, suppose that rage at corrupting social conditions blinds evildoers to possible responses other than violent ones. Why does the violence take the form of mass murder rather than, say, the destruction of property, sabotage of public works, or wholesale theft? <coughs> If the violence must take murderous form, why is it directed indiscriminately at everyone, such as children, young men and women and other victims who cannot possibly be blamed for the social conditions? And if the violence is murderous and indiscriminate, why is it often combined with the humiliation, rape, torture, and mutilation of the victims. Once again, the malevolence of evil actions must be attributed to psychological causes 
in addition to social ones. Furthermore, many of the Nazi, communist, religious, ethnic, and tribal mass murderers came from relatively prosperous families and were certainly not victims of poverty, discrimination, persecution, or injustice. If anything, they belonged to a class whose members were exempt or actually benefited from the corrupting social conditions. Their evil actions, therefore, cannot be the result of corruption by social conditions. Lastly, this often repeated explanation simply takes for granted the existence of corrupting social conditions. But social conditions do not fall ready-made from the heavens. They are created and maintained by people. If they are corrupting, it is because those who created and maintained them are corrupt. It may be said that they were also corrupted by social conditions, but that merely postpones facing the question of why they created and maintained those corrupting social conditions. Sooner or later, the evasion must stop, and reason compels the recognition that it is corrupting social conditions that must be explained by the psychological dispositions of people who create and maintain them, rather than the reverse, which is what this pathetic explanation attempts to do. Its basic defect is to explain the cause by its own effect. Evil actions by corrupting social conditions, when in fact evil actions are not the effects but the causes of social conditions. Why then so do so many normally intelligent people accept this farrago of an explanation? Because they are unwilling to question the secular faith that human beings are basically reasonable and good. They do not face the prevalence of evil because they would have to give up their, comfort, their comforting faith. But the faith is dangerous. It leads those to hold it, to ignore the most serious threat to human well-being. The psychological disposition of human beings to inflict grievous harm on innocent victims malevolently, deliberately, and without moral justification or excuse. The secular problem of evil is to explain why people act in, on these dispositions rather than on ones that protect the conditions of well-being, including their own. So I now move to what I take to be a better explanation. The prevalence of evil is a good reason for rejecting the secular faith, but it is not even a bad reason for accepting the equally implausible view that human beings are basically unreasonable and evil. The facts point to the conclusion that human beings are basically ambivalent. The basic dispositions are mixed, 
some incline us to act reasonably and morally, some <coughs> to act unreasonably and immorally, and some have very little to do with either reason or morality. <coughs> the prevalence of evil shows that in some circumstances reason of unreasonable and evil dispositions come to dominate contrary dispositions. To explain evil is to explain why and how this happens. The explanation must specify both the external circumstances and the internal dispositions that jointly motivate evildoers to do evil. The explanation I, proceed, I propose proceeds in five steps. The first step is to recognize that unlike moral monsters, evildoers typically do not see their actions as evil. In cases of mass murder, for instance, they may acknowledge that what they have done and are doing again and again is killing, but they deny that it is evil. They deny that the victims are innocent, that their own motives are malevolent, and that the killings are morally unjustified. They may sincerely, sincerely say to themselves, or to others if challenged, that the victims are dangerous enemies of the society, that the motive for killing them is the obligation to protect general well-being, and that the killings are morally justified because the protection of well-being depends on the destruction of its enemies. Killing them is no different from killing in war or self-defense. Evildoers may readily grant, indeed might insist that murder is evil and indignantly deny that their homicides are murders. The denials are grotesquely mistaken, of course, because the victims are innocent, their motives are malevolent, and their actions are morally unjustifiable, <coughs> but evildoers may sincerely believe the opposite. The ordinary people who became accomplices of moral monsters, maybe Nazi or Communist Party members, devout defenders of various faiths, ardent nationalists, dedicated terrorists, or merciless revolutionaries. They are often genuinely convinced of the justice of the mass murders and the viciousness of the victims. If they have doubts about their treating their imagined enemies in ways that are normally evil, they can appeal to like-minded political, religious, or historical authorities who assure them that they are doing the right thing and praise them for their selfless service to a fine ideal. We know from the testimony of mass murderers and from their histories and biographies that they see themselves as righteous champions of God, history, justice, racial purity, national glory, or whatever. They see evil all right, but they ascribe it to the victims, not to themselves. Mm -hmm. 
The second step of the explanation is to make clear that moral monsters and their accomplices see the evil they do differently. Moral monsters see it as evil and they do it either for its own sake or the for sake of something they regard as far more important than morality. Their accomplices do not believe that their actions are evil. They think that they are morally justified. In this, they are flagrantly, absurdly, obviously mistaken. Their mistakes, however, are not ordinary errors we are all prone to make from time to time, but perverse interpretations of plain facts that rest on no credible reason. They are akin to blaming a mental illness on possession by the devil or infertility on the evil eye. If we focus on the egregiously false beliefs of ordinary people who become accomplices to mass murder, we can only marvel at them. Communists say that the victims are plotting a counter-revolution to reverse the laws of history. Nazis claim that Jews are part of a conspiracy to wrong the superior Aryan race of its right to dominate the world. Nationalists charge their supposed enemies and often an incompletely assimilated ethnic group in their society of treacherously obstructing the nation's return to the past glory that rightfully belongs to it. Defenders of what they regard as the true religion condemn defenders of, what other, religi of other religions for worshipping false gods and hold that the true God depends ridding the world of them. Terrorists accuse arbitrarily selected targets of supporting a corrupt system that opposes the rule of those who know where goodness and truth lies. The mass murderers appeal to ideals to justify the evil they do but their ideals cannot withstand even superficial examination. Ineradicable differences in capacities, moral conduct, experiences, and reasoned judgment make a society that ignores them blatantly unjust and detrimental to human well-being. Racial superiority is untenable, because of decisive historical and genetic evidence for the intermingling of the races, because normative biases involved in selecting for statistical comparison supposedly important inherited racial characteristics, and because it is impossible to determine the relative importance of inheritance and environment for subsequent performance. The distinction between true and false religions ignores that ultimately all religions rest on faith and that it is sacrilegious to suppose that God, if there is one, would demand mass murder. The terrorists dream of rule by authorities with special access to goodness and truth 
ignores the overwhelming historical evidence of the much greater suffering caused by such authorities than whatever, than whatever it is that the terrorists blame democratic regimes for causing. The plots of which these mass murderers accused the victims of hatching, if possible, are even less plausible than the ideals to which they appeal. Counter-revolution, worldwide Jewish conspiracy for worshipping false gods, democratic conspiracies to, to perpetuate injustice, are one and all absurd inventions used by evildoers to justify mass murders. Even if their justifications were accepted, they would not explain why the victims of mass murders include children, barely intelligent adults, and the decrepit old who could not possibly be plotting anything. Evildoers add to the false ideal and the absurd plot the grotesque claim that all their victims are essentially corrupted by ineradicable components of the character, capitalist class consciousness, Jewish parentage, the values of a false religion or Western attitudes that make them enemies regardless of what they actually do. That is why the victims cannot be innocent, why they have to be killed, why evildoers can claim to act on the motives that have the highest moral credentials, and why their mass murders are in fact morally justified killings of the most dangerous enemies of human well-being. The third step is to explain <coughs> how these grotesquely mistaken beliefs could possibly held by normally intelligent people who are the accomplices of the moral monsters and who believe themselves to be committed to morality. The explanation I propose is that they have been led to their beliefs by their acceptance of an ideology. I hasten to stress that I do not claim that all ideologies lead to mass murders or that all evil is ideological. I claim only that ideologies readily lend themselves to the justification of mass murder and this makes them dangerous regardless of whether they are secular or religious, political or moral, nationalistic or racial. The evidence for this is the historical record of the evil done in the name of communism, Nazism, religion, nationalism and terrorism. The essential feature of ideologies is an evaluative attitude that combines a set of beliefs about the nature of the world, an ideal of how human life ought to be, an explanation of why there is a yawning gap between the ideal and the miserable social conditions, and a program for closing the gap between how life ought to be and how it is. <coughs> Ideologies are dangerous 
because they tend to breed true believers with dogmatic attitudes who hold that theirs is the one and only ideal of how human beings ought to live. The ideal may be set down in a sacred text, exemplified in the life of an exceptional individual, dictated by the laws of history, sociology, or psychology, located in past idyllic conditions, uncorrupted by civilization, or represented in a future utopia of perfected human nature. All ideologies hold that human well-being requires living in conformity to whatever the ideal happens to be. The failure to conform to it obstructs the pursuit of well-being, and reason and human well-being make it obligatory for ideologues to remove the obstructions from the way. This may be done by educating those who do not understand the ideal or by preventing those who understand and reject the ideal from jeopardizing its pursuit. Mild coercion by education or forceful coercion by whatever means are necessary are natural concomitants of the pursuit of the ideal. According to ideologues, coercion for these reasons is not only justified but required by reason and goodness because human well-being depends on it. The widespread appeal of ideologies is undeniable. They cut through the complexities, moral ambiguities, compromises and malaise that beset many people in contemporary life and uh, by the gap left by the waning of traditional religious belief. Ideologies provide clarity about the good and evil and offer simple and consistent judgment to those who yearn for guidance about how they should live. Countless people survey their comfortable or miserable existence, the routines of everyday life, uninteresting and soul-destroying jobs, dispirited relationships with similarly disenchanted souls, and say to themselves, or perhaps to each other, that there must be more to life. Ideologues provide what they yearn for. By committing themselves to an ideology, people gain a sense of identity, acquire membership in a community of like-minded people, find an ideal they could follow, receive an explanation of why the existing conditions are wretched, and are told what needs to be done to improve them. One might be tempted to say that all this is to the good, but the temptation should be resisted because ideologues encourage their accomplices to justify the evil they do. The perniciousness of the justification the accomplices derive from ideologies becomes apparent if we do not allow abstractions to obscure the concreteness of what is going on in mass murders. On the one hand, there are the accomplices who time after time pull the triggers, hang, bury, alive, bayonet, or burn hundreds of helpless victims, including children, old people, and pregnant women, 
the immediate undeniable experience of the accomplices is the face-to-face -face massacring of people who, bead, who bleed, beg, pray, hold on to each other as they helplessly face imminent death. On the other hand, there is the grotesque story the accomplices tell themselves of why they are murdering these people. They reassure themselves with ideological catchphrases that they are working for a classless society, saving the world from conspiracy, doing God's will, making the world just, and so forth. What could possess them to believe that these absurd abstractions, this theoretical background that they understand at best only faintly, could justify the grievous harm they habitually cause and witness? The answer, of course, is that the catchphrases are not the reasons for what they are doing. The accomplices use ideological slogans to justify to themselves the horrendous actions, their horrendous actions, that they know are normally evil. They can then say to themselves that their actions are justified because they are saving the world from its enemies, the enemies of human well-being. The ideologues whose slogans they parrot allow them to believe obvious falsehoods about their victims and thereby deceive themselves about the true nature of their actions. But what the accomplices care about is not human well-being, but murdering their imagined enemies. They are not engaged in the ruthless pursuit of an ideological ideal. The ideal is only for show. That is why they can shrug off its utter implausibility. The rhetoric of dedication to human well-being is phony. But the rhetoric of excoriating imagined enemies is heartfelt. Why then do the accomplices join moral monsters in excoriating and murdering their imagined victims? Why do they bother with the ideology and with swallowing the highly implausible false ideals, ridiculous plots, and irrevocably corrupt character traits of their imagined victims? Why do they invent imagined enemies? <laughs> I, do will, what you can. <laughs> I, I will try to hurry up. These questions lead to the final step of my proposed explanation. I have stressed the importance of ideologies for the explanation of mass murder. Their importance, however, is not that they provide motives for the murders, thank you very much, but that they direct and justify the evil actions prompted by <coughs> motives evildoers have independently of their ideologies. Their motives are the various forms of malevolence, cruelty, evil, fanaticism, hatred, jealousy, prejudice, rage, and ruthlessness that are one of the defining characteristics of evil actions. 
In civilized societies and normal circumstances, most of us try not to act on such motives. We are constrained by moral limits, by commitments to the well-being of others, and by benevolent motives, which we have alongside with malignant ones. If these constraints are effective, they stop us from acting on malevolent motives, but they do not stop us from having them. They remain as possibilities on which we may act if we face serious hardship, frustration, provocation, or temptation. We all have malevolent motives of various kinds and strengths. If we did not have them, self-control, conscience, moral education, prudence, discipline, legal prohibitions, and law enforcement would be largely superfluous. But of course they are needed, as we all know, directly from our own case and indirectly from the observation of our children and the testimonies of those close to us and a step further removed from witnessing occasions on which people's self-control has slipped and a malevolence was momentarily revealed. Malevolent motives clamor for expression when for good or bad reasons we become dissatisfied with our lives. Ideologies are dangerous because they encourage the expression of malevolent motives by providing scapegoats and justifying the persecution. Ideologues supply abstract claptrap whose slogans the accomplices can parrot to explain to themselves and others why they are right to vent their malevolence on victims. I think I will stop here. I have a little more, but in the interest of discussion, I... Okay. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you. Um, so we're going to have our respondent, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Guy Kahane, who's at the UHERA Center for Practical Ethics, and then we'll open up for discussion. So as could be expected, that was an incredibly rich and ambitious talk. So Kix has offered us an account of evil. He introduced the intriguing idea of a secular problem of evil, and he's offered us an explanation of the prevalence of evil. So I won't say much about the proposed analysis of evil. It's partly because a lot of people have spoken about this here, and partly because with Steve, I doubt that there really is a single, precise, everyday notion of evil, no more than there is one of philosophy. So what matters isn't whether Kicks has exactly captured all aspects of the everyday use of this word, but whether he's identified an important phenomenon worth thinking about, and he clearly has. I'll have quite a bit more to say about this intriguing suggestion that there is an important secular problem of evil. I'm going to start by taking this idea uh, a bit more literally than perhaps uh, Kicks intended. So the tension between these religions and the existence of evil is familiar. Evil has sometimes been taken to be logically incompatible 
with the existence of an omnipotent um, and omnibenevolent, uh, omnibenevolent God. But in more recent discussion, the problem of evil is understood in a weaker evidential sense. The existence of evil is claimed to make God's existence improbable. It's not logically inconsistent with it. But the relation between evil and secularism is less obvious. I'll assume that secularism implies non-theism or even atheism. But the falsity of theism just implies that there's no presumption that the world would be especially good. It's hardly incompatible with the existence of evil. Nor could evil be evidenced both against and for theism. Secularism is also sometimes associated with naturalism, very, very roughly the view that nothing exists beyond the natural world as described by science. Of course, naturalism describes a universe that, as Richard Dawkins somewhat puts it, is blind, indifferent, and pitiless. Again, the existence of evil is hardly evidence against that. There is a possible tension between evil and naturalism. As Yves Gerard mentioned yesterday, many take it to be central to evil, but it's in some sense incomprehensible, resistant to full explanation. If evil is literally incomprehensible, then it's also resistant to naturalist explanation, and that would be a problem. It's interesting that although many people believe that evil is resistant to explanation, this isn't taken to be a serious problem for naturalism. The problem of consciousness, meaning, and value are all far higher on the list. One reason may be that many critics of naturalism are theists. But if evil can only be understood in supernatural terms, this hardly helps God. And not very many people want to defend Satanism. But things might also go in the other direction. If it's inherent to evil that it's incomprehensible, or can only be understood by reference to demonic forces, as Steve seemed to have suggested, then we can, and then if we can give a naturalistic explanation of what we describe as evil, this might present a problem, not for secularism, but for evil. And the idea that there's a secular problem for evil is actually quite common. Now, the supposed inexplicability of evil isn't really what Kicks means by the secular problem of evil. He doesn't even mention this, and of course, he then goes on to himself offer an explanation, a very detailed explanation, of why evil is prevalent. Still, although this isn't how Kicks presents things, we can also understand his explanation of evil, which is thoroughly naturalistic, as a kind of answer to this worry about secularism. In any event, I don't know of any serious naturalist who thinks that evil is inexplicable in the relevant sense. If anything, naturalism has a serious problem, not with evil, but with goodness. By this I don't mean the non-trivial meta-ethical worry that value and morality are incompatible with naturalism, because that problem applies with equal, equal force to badness and goodness. I rather mean the scientific worry that if humans are the product of blind evolutionary processes that are concerned only with the transmission of genes and reproductive fitness, then it can seem a mystery how human beings are capable of any kind of genuine morality and altruism. From a naturalist standpoint, what is difficult to explain isn't why some humans are sometimes nasty, but how any humans are ever really nice. And this problem of moral goodness is actually a serious empirical challenge to naturalism, and one on which scientists have made considerable progress, 
uh, over the past few decades. You may know work on keen altruism, reciprocal altruism, uh, sexual selection, perhaps group selection is part of the story, although there's obviously quite a bit of work to be done. But the main point is that in a naturalist world, it's selfish bad behavior, not goodness, that is the default assumption. Now let me finally turn to what Kicks really means by the secular form of evil, and this relates to something he calls secular fate. Fate that involves the belief that human beings are basically reasonable and good. And if evil exists, it's only because some humans have been corrupted by social conditions. And it's this view that is supposed to be challenged by the existence of evil. Now, I'm not entirely sure what is meant by basically reasonable and good. I can see way of, um, ways of understanding this phrase which seem to me more or less correct. And even Kicks himself accepts that both, uh, both that humans have some strong natural moral tendencies and that social factors such as ideology play an important role in explaining evil. So Kicks appears to have in mind something like the view that humans are in some way born purely and unreservedly good and are only later corrupted by social influences. Now, as I've just explained, this view is actually just incompatible with any serious naturalist view. And to reject it, we don't need to refer to incredibly complex modern events like the Holocaust, the broken skull and cooked human bone that our Neolithic ancestors left behind, or the astonishing rates of violent death in hunter-gatherer societies already definitely falsify the myth of the noble savage. If anything, it's social factors that explain how humans have gradually become even modestly civilized, a story that Steven Pinker has tried to tell in his recent book. So not only is this, isn't this naive view entailed by secularism, it's also incompatible with any serious uh, form of naturally secularism. Moreover, it may even have religious roots. The Pelagian heresy comes to mind here. So it seems somewhat unfair to speak here of a secular problem of evil. Kicks might reply that this is still an apt label because this view nevertheless dominates secular thought. I'm not myself that sure. Kicks offer a list of thinkers, uh, but I'm not yet persuaded that all of these really held this naive view. Kant, for example, may have admired Rousseau, but was also deeply pessimistic about human nature and developed an elaborate theory of uh, radical evil, which I don't think fits the secular faith that Kicks described. Anyway, that, that's this interpretive issue is, is a separate uh, question, of course. Then there's a point that there's one dominant strand of secular thought that notoriously identifies reason with instrumental rationality and sees humans as basically immoral and self-interested. This view may be crude, but again, it's not Kicks secular faith. Now, I don't mean to deny that there is a tendency in some left-leaning circles in the humanities to deny that humans have any natural malevolent dispositions and tendency as well to explain and even excuse many, well, certainly not all instances of evil by reference to injustice and poverty. That seems to be the secular faith that he has in mind. Still, it's worth noting that this view, it's hard to know how widespread it is, uh, and I think it's less widespread today than, than in the recent past, this view, as misguided as it may be in many ways, is itself a response to the role that pseudo-biological theories played in the evils of the Holocaust. It's not completely uh, uh, without its 
virtues. Now, I don't have much time to say uh, anything too detailed about Kick's own attempt to explain evil. I said that there's a limit to what we should expect from the conceptual analysis of the notion of evil. There are even greater limits to the armchair explanation of the existence and pervasiveness of evil. This is ultimately a causal question, which can only be fully answered by scientific and historical evidence. And incredibly detailed evidence would be required. Now, the factors that kick sides seem to be plausible and will plausibly play an important part in such an explanation. Still, once we set aside naive views about the pure natural goodness of human beings, I wonder just how much progress has been made. Is this really a testable hypothesis? What evidence would confirm and falsify it? What does it really explain that we couldn't explain before? One is drawn near almost compulsively to the ultimate test case of the Holocaust. When people claim to find the Holocaust incomprehensible, this isn't because of any secular faith in human goodness. And it's only right-wing apologists who explain the Holocaust by reference to injustice and excusing social pressures and factors. If anything, the dominant secular tendency goes in the opposite direction, to see it as utterly incomprehensible by such uh, factors and explanation. Now, when transcendent good is rejected, this is sometimes replaced by a mystification or even mysticism of evil, and a serious secularism should resist this. But this doesn't mean the difficulty here isn't genuine and deep. And I, I sincerely wonder whether Keith's explanation really helps here. It's true, uh, not all of our natural motives are pleasant. We can be easily deceived and self-deceived. Ideologies can provide excuses for the inexcusable, etc., etc. Well, as I said, I sincerely wonder whether this really helps us explain the step from Gethe to the gas chambers. That's it. Take, um, yeah, I was going to say, it's questions. 4 o'clock. Is everybody happy to stay for another We've 15 to, to 20 minutes? Um, so, I mean, if someone needs to leave, then feel free, okay? But otherwise, we'll just want to yeah. take this opportunity. Okay, so um, would you like to respond briefly, or should we just go straight to questions? Maybe going straight to questions. No, let's just go straight to questions. Yes, okay, great. Steve, yeah. start us up. Um, so this is just, uh, I'm just curious um, about the problem. So as I understand it, the problem is um, belief that humans are reasonable, both reasonable and good, is incompatible with a whole bunch of evidence. Right. Now, um, can I, to solve the problem, just give up one of the conjuncts? Could I say either humans are... So, so say I start with this... Uh, Silly um, could, I, um, could I nevertheless hold on to one of these things? Or do I have to give them both up? Could I say humans are reasonable and yet not good? Would that, would that solve it? Or um, could I say humans are good and yet not reasonable? Or do I have to drop both of these claims? I don't know. Uh, you, uh, if you don't uh, accept the explanation I endeavoured to, provi to provide, then presumably you have an alternative explanation, and I want to hear it. Right. Uh, no, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm worried that your explanation is so good that it's, it's going to knock out both conjuncts. Right, but um, I can 
neither accept that humans are good nor that humans are reasonable. Yes. Um, in which case, it looks like it's actually two problems rather than uh, one problem. But uh, what, 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 what is wrong with uh, the explanation that human beings are basically ambivalent? Which no, is which is which is the one I have uh, opted for. No, I agree with it. So then, so then, what's the problem? The problem is how <laughs> this is set up as a logical problem. Because I think there's two separate problems here. There's a problem about goodness and a problem about reasonableness, and they're separate problems. I suppose the question is whether they're also ambivalent in the rationality or reasonableness. Yes. Are you claiming just that they are not entirely good, but maybe they are still reasonable, yes. or they are also um, not reasonable? Yes, I, that's I the problem. Two problems running side by side, and worried they being run together. My apologies, I did not understand your question. Thank you for the help. Uh, my uh, response, I suppose, is that the ambivalence cuts both ways. And uh, the secular problem, as I see it, is that given that, what we can do to combat evil? One question. The other question is that given that's true, how can we explain evil? And uh, my answer to the second question is that we can explain most, by no means all. We can explain much evil by uh, ideological explanations and uh, the other is uh, what can we do given that uh, we are ambivalent both rationally and morally and uh, that's a question I haven't even touched but uh, I wrote a lot about it but uh, I, I that just wasn't part of the paper okay. yes Steve um, <coughs> I find myself uh, ambivalent about how to respond to your, your paper because your, your litany of horrors in the beginning uh, are, are stomach churning, are supposed to be stomach churning, as you show just the level of inhumanity yes. that human beings can resort to. But then Guy mentioned something that I was thinking about when you were saying this, and this is the Stephen Pinker uh, book that attempts to show that, in fact, contrary to that evidence, if you look at the grand sweep of human history right back from the cave dwellers till now, Things actually are improving, maybe not in absolute numbers, but then you know this is in comparison to the number of people in the world. So I, I'm ambivalent. I, I I find what you say persuasive, but I also have a sense that things are getting better because of social conditions and views and ideological views that are help. For example, human rights. Uh, the idea that we just don't accept slavery anymore. Some people are still slavers. It's true, but we don't accept that. And and that might be a contributing factor to how things are getting better. And is the social conditions rather than individual? I'm, I'm with you when you say that human beings are ambivalent. I, I'm fully with that. But I'm just wondering about the social conditions pushing us in the right direction. Yes. So can I, I jump in there? Sorry. Yes. Um, slave, we do accept slavery. We just call it by a different name. Okay. Well, that's a that's a whole different. Well, okay. yeah. So, I think Pinker's book is a dreadful book. Uh, Pinker is deeply ignorant of history, and. Uh, I'm, I get indignant if I think about the book. So, so to describe things as getting better when in the last century over a hundred million people 
who have done nothing were murdered is a, a kind of perversity that I, I, I cannot begin to counter. I mean, it, it, it requires psychological explanation how an intelligent person who Pinker undoubtedly is could believe that thing. There is no doubt several historians are on record saying that the last century was the bloodiest century in human history, in recorded human history. And so along comes Pinker with this idiotic claim. <laughs> I, I really... Yes, please. Yeah. Um, I was interested in your uh, account of the explanations perpetrators of evils give of their own actions. Yes. Uh, for example, in the next few years, if he doesn't die before, they're going to have Ratko Mladic in court defending his actions with regard to the Bosnian Muslims. And I've no doubt he'll say something along the lines of what you suggested, that these people were a menace, that they were, that the media is biased against the Serbs, that they were, they were killing terrorists, and so forth. What interests me is, supposing that that is the world as he sees it, and supposing he's sincere uh, in, in the essence of what he says, how do we explain his view of the nature of evil? Do we say that he just is descriptively thinking about something completely different to what we think of when we think about evil? Um, he's made a radical mistake about what the real referent of the term is, to some extent at least. Or do we say that he's just, um, that in your more radical view, he accepts uh, our account of what makes him evil, but to some extent it excites him to do those things? Uh, because they're evil, and that, that's the radical things. And that, I mean, I don't think that's a plausible view, but um, to some extent it might be supported by the thought that when he identifies his enemies as exactly <coughs> all these vices, which descript descriptively um, given, we would agree our vices were they correctly attributed, we can agree he does have some shared conception descriptively of what evil things are. He's just misattributing it to his enemies and failing to attribute it properly to himself. So I'm just, I'm just trying to make sense of the, the sincere mindset of a man like Radish to take an example. Well, that is exactly what I think his mindset is, what you said at the, at the end. Right. And if you get closer and you want a more detailed explanation, they are readily available. There are intelligent, literate Serbs who explain the necessity of doing this by going back about 500 years in uh, Balkan history at the time when the Turks invaded and there were some of the indigenous population who actually collaborated with the Turks and inflicted immense suffering on the rest and uh, who converted and these people who converted who were the collaborators where actually uh, the present-day Bosnians <coughs> are descendants on these, of these people, and it is only historically right and proper for the Serbians to free themselves from this poison that exists in the myths, which as goes back 500 years. So that's the story he would tell. And, of course, the Bosnians also have a story to tell, and... Uh, and so in the meantime, uh, the Bosnians get uh, murdered. I, I suspect that uh, if uh, the 
Bosnians inherited Tito's military powers, they would do the same to the Serbs. But okay, I think we can take maybe two or three more questions. So please go ahead. Um, I very much agree with um, your idea that human beings are ambivalently good or bad and ambivalently um, reasonable and unreasonable. I just wonder whether um, they might be somewhat less rational than you describe and how much of a role emotions of fear and um, identities of group membership and various other senses of pride might play as well in a lot of these acts of violence. I'm thinking I'm, particularly of the Balkans, but I'm sure in other areas. I, I am sure that uh, emotional factors play a strong role and they play a strong role both positively and negatively. Uh, negatively on the side of reason by interfering with the dispassionate uh, uh, operations of uh, normally uh, reasonable procedures. And uh, on the um, moral side, by uh, being overrun by passions as, uh, as the Serbs were when they remembered the ghastly atrocities that uh, the Turks and their collaborators have done 500 years earlier. So, so yes, I, I, I am with you on, on that. Yes, please. Like many other people, I totally endorse your picture of the ambivalent nature of, of human beings. Um, but you appeal to ideology to explain why some human beings with this ambivalent nature enact these horrors and others don't. And that seems to be very plausible. I've got no objection to that at all. But most people don't invent their own ideology. They find it in the air around them or someone teaches it to them and so on. If you allow that environmental factors like the presence of an ideology can help us to explain why some people enact evilly, would you also allow that other environmental features like perhaps poverty or oppression or humiliation or name the usual list, they might also play some part uh, in the explanation of, of the creation of evil? Well, I have no doubt that uh, social factors influence the motivation of people. Of course they do. Uh, but uh, it is one thing to allow that, and quite another to explain evil by reference to poverty or injustice or whatever. It's going to be multifactorial. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I think um, we can close that session then by uh, thank you. Yes, okay. I want to thank our speakers and commentators and to thank all of you for your very helpful and wonderful questions and active participation through these few days. <laughs>